All right, you can grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, grab them. We're continuing in our study through the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, the words will be on the screen. We study this letter. Remember, Paul is writing from a Roman jail to this church he planted some 10 years earlier. Roman, uh, Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse 12, Paul writes from prison, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of God, and he says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. As some of you know or may have heard, uh, Kate, my wife, and I have uh, been taking training classes over the past uh, month or so uh, to become foster parents. And in one of those uh, Zoom training classes, we uh, watched a clip from a documentary that opened our eyes and broke our hearts uh, it took place somewhere in a holler in West Virginia where this mother and her son lived and the father had run off. He was nowhere to be found. Uh, and the mom wasn't super concerned about that because that meant the domestic abuse was over as well. This uh, little kid is running around drinking six Cokes a day, bouncing off the walls with no structure, no parents really to care for him at all. Mom was pregnant, and uh, we get to the point where she goes to the hospital to have the baby, and everything goes fine. She has the baby. It's a healthy baby girl, and they're excited. And the mom is showing off the baby to the camera crew and, and saying, look, you know, look at her. She's so beautiful, all this stuff. And, and she says, oh, give me one second. And she turns over, and for the sake of kids, I will be vaguer. She turns over and does some drugs, pretty strong drugs wipes her nose and looks back like it was no big deal for the world to see that it was that normal to her. And she holds her baby girl in her hands. She says something very interesting. She says, you know, I want better for my baby girl. And I know that if she stays here in this place, she'll never get out. No one ever gets out. She says, I know she'll have no real future because no one leaves this place. You see, we are all a product of where we have come from. When you hear me talk, you know that I'm not from Ohio. You know I'm from somewhere where the sweet tea is a little bit more like syrup. Amen. 
But more than just our accents giving us away, we are products of our home, products of where we came from. Some of us are stuck in cycles that have been going on for generation after generation after generation, cycles of abuse, cycles of poverty, cycles of bad tempers, of addiction, of unfaithfulness, and on and on. We all have seen things in our parents that we swore we would never do and yet find ourselves doing those very things. The cycle continues, and we ask the question, must we always be defined and shaped by where we come from? Must we always be defined and shaped by where we come from? Must our birthplace define who we are, shape who we are, or can we rise above it? Can we grow beyond where we came from? I watched for the first time the other night a movie that I recommend highly called Hidden Figures, a movie about three African-American women who worked for NASA who rose above their station, who rose above what society told them they were and what they could do. They grew beyond their birthplace and helped change the world because without these women, the Russians would have beat us in the space race. It's always inspiring to hear stories or watch movies about stories of people who overcome struggle overcome their birthplace or their heritage. It is inspiring to hear about men and women who rise out of poverty and make a name for themselves. It is inspiring to hear about people who break cycles of addiction going back generations. About three African-American women who helped put a man in space even though the world told them they were subhuman and couldn't use the same bathroom as all the white people. Still, they grew beyond what their heritage said they were. These stories are inspiring. But as we sit here this morning, there are many of us in this room who would look and say, you know what, that's not really my story. You know, I don't really have any cycles of addiction or brokenness or abuse that I need to overcome. There's no poverty I need to overcome. There's no issue or bad habit I need to overcome. But what I would say to those of you this morning is that that's actually not true, that this story is your story too, even if you don't see it. Because every person, Every person was born into a world, into a home that for generations and generations has been in a cycle of rebellion and brokenness and despair. We were all born into dysfunction because that is the legacy your father gave you. Your father, Adam, and his wife, Eve, gave into their lust for power, their lust for knowledge, and rebelled against God and set all of their children on a path of destruction. This world, including you and me, are broken. All of our stories begin the same way. We are born as citizens of earth, citizens of this world, and we are products of that citizenship. We are products of this world, of our father Adam. But the question remains to be answered. Will you be defined by where you're from? Will you be molded by where you're from, or will you be defined by something else? Can you break the cycle? Can you rise above? Can you be defined not by where you came from, but where you're going? Must the kingdom of earth make us who we are, or can the kingdom of God? Can we, instead of being defined and shaped by where we came from, can we be where we're going? If we can, what would that look like? What would our stories be? 
as we rose above our station as citizens of earth and became something more, something bigger, something better, something higher even, citizens of the kingdom of God. See, we can either be shaped by where we came from or where we're going. We can either be shaped by our citizenship on earth or our citizenship in heaven. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. See, Paul is giving this warning. Do not walk, do not live like these people who are enemies of the cross. It is breaking Paul's heart as he is weeping, as he writes, weeping over those who are finding their salvation, their hope, and things other than the cross. You see, that's really the point, that whatever we believe will save us, whatever we believe will deliver us or complete us, we will become like that thing. We become like the country we are citizens of. And Paul was weeping over those people who find their salvation in things other than the cross. And so he says in verse 19, their end, their goal, the end point for them, the end of their story is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their end is destruction. Those who find their salvation through setting their mind on earthly things, their end is destruction. That is plain and simple and a sobering reminder to us this morning that citizenship to the kingdom of earth only ends in destruction, that there is no hope and no life and no future here. I want us to zoom in on verse 19 that I just read, and I want us to see two ways that the kingdom of earth marks us and shapes us and that how we can, we can rise above that, move beyond that to something higher and be marked by the kingdom of heaven. So we know that for those who are citizens of earth will forever be stuck in this destructive cycle of rebellion, of brokenness. But what are they marked by here and now? What are those markers? In verse 19, he says, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Now, what does that mean? Let's take the first part, God. Their God. Now, now th- when, he's, when Paul is saying this, what he's meaning uh, isn't actually some deity. It's not like, oh, no, well, they don't worship Yahweh, they worship Zeus. That's not what he's saying. He means it is the thing that they worship. And he, by worship, he doesn't mean that they go to some temple or some church or some service and do these religious activities. But rather, he's saying simply the thing that you place your hope or your trust, your, your longings in, that thing that you hope in, that thing has become your God. Whatever you believe will ultimately fulfill you and bring you joy, that thing can become your God. And so he says that their God is their belly. So what does, it, what does that mean? What does it mean? It says that their belly is their God. Well, the stomach is known for its cravings, its rumblings, its longings. It wants to be fed. It wants to be filled. So our cravings, our desires, our longings, not just for food, he's not just saying for food, but anything that our hearts or souls long for, to be filled is what he means. That they've made their belly their God is that they've made the things they crave and long for their God. Now that they are actively pursuing these things they crave, they are actively pursuing after things that they believe will make them happy. 
You see, when, when you cannot see past the grave, when in life, as you look to the future, when the grave is the end, when death is final and there's nothing beyond it, when this life is all there is, when you just have a few short years, you've got to get all you can. you got to get it now. you got to live it up now. you got to enjoy it now because this is it. That's all there is. It is why we are so prone to these cycles of destruction in our lives because we stop looking up And we look down to the things of earth. We don't look past the grave sometimes as followers of Jesus. And we begin to believe the lie that says, this is all there is, and so I've got to make the best of it now. It is the reason we often think that new cars and nicer houses and new clothes and more stuff will make us happy. And we go in debt to buy things that we think will fulfill us. It is the reason people turn to drugs and alcohol to numb their pain and to feel better for a few moments. It is the reason that marriages fall apart because the grass looks greener with someone else. If this world is all there is, then we should, like Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So let's party now, let's live it up now, let's enjoy it now because tomorrow we die and this is all there is. And if this world is all there is, that's of course how we should live. We should do whatever the heck we want to do. We should do whatever feels good. And, and forget whoever is in our way. Just push them aside and get yours. Fulfill your cravings. If this world is all there is, that makes perfect sense. If death is the end, then nothing matters anyway. That the height of humanity, the height of the purposes of humanity is your own happiness, then go for it. See, that's what it means, in part, to be marked by the citizenship of earth. That's what it means to be a product of this kingdom of earth. It means to overindulge, to place your hope in the things the world has to offer. That's why Paul continues and he says, now they glory in their shame. It's not that they feel shame over what they're doing but rather that they should feel shame because they glory, they are excited, they are celebrating that they have received these things that they think will fulfill them and make them happy. They've arrived. They celebrate at them. You see, but in the end, in the end, what we see again and again, I've seen this in my life, I've seen this in other people's lives, and it's evidenced in the scriptures. And again and again, is that just like our bellies are full for a little while, you, you can eat and be overly stuffed, sick to your stomach because you filled your belly so much with food. And then only a few hours later, it is already crying out and begging you for more. In the same way, new car, new clothes, new relationships, popularity, beauty, money, whatever you think it is that will satisfy you, whatever it is you cling for, status, recognition, whatever it is, It will satisfy you for a moment. It will fill you up and feel so good for a moment. But just like the peanut butter and jelly sandwich that you had for lunch soon fades and your stomach cries for more, so too will money and cars and and girls and relationships or whatever will fade and it will cry for more. It is a bottomless pit that you cannot fill. A few things illustrate this as well as in 2005, Tom Brady had just won his third Super Bowl. He was on 60 Minutes being interviewed. And they begin talking about, what does it feel like to win three Super Bowls? And they talk about that. And he says, what does it mean to you? 
that you were this nobody quarterback in high school, nobody quarterback in college, no one thought you were anything, and now you are arguably the best quarterback in the NFL, in the world. Talked about what it means to him, whatever. And then he says, what, what, what does it feel like to be on top, to have arrived? What does it feel like to do something few people do and have done it three times? What does that mean to you? And Tom Brady says something really interesting. He says, when I think about that, when I think about winning the Super Bowl three times, being on top of the world, the best quarterback in the world, he says, there's got to be more than this. He says, when I think about it, he's like, there's got to be more than this, right? And, and the interviewer was shocked. He was like, didn't really know how to, how to take that. He was like, really? You are on top. You are a millionaire. You've won these Super Bowls. You're going to be in the Hall of Fame. You're all this. What do you mean there's got to be more than this? And the interviewer asked Tom Brady, well, what's the answer? What more is there? And Tom Brady said the saddest thing that I think is so often true. He said, what more is there? I wish I knew. Wish I knew. Maybe four Super Bowls, maybe five Super Bowls. Wish I knew. This world offers a lot of amazing things. There are a lot of good things in this world, but sadly, none of them will ever be enough. We will never arrive, no matter how much we obtain, how much pleasure we experience, we can get and get and get and always crave more. See, the first way that we can be shaped by the kingdom of earth is by placing too much significance on earthly things. This earth wants us to overindulge in its things. It wants us to believe it can make us happy. But the second, the second way we can be marked by earth is a little more devious, if the first error is by feeding our desires and by doing whatever makes us feel good, second's the opposite. We can deny our cravings. We can reject things that are good. We can beat our bodies into submission over and over uh, again over these base desires. Like, you see this a lot in Eastern religions, right? But people, who, uh, they would say that um, they can only find peace when they deny themselves everything their body craves, deny themselves food, deny themselves pleasure or anything. But that's not just in Eastern religions. That's true of us. You may not realize it. Now, let me be clear. What I am not about to say is that it's wrong for you to go on a diet, that it's wrong for you to not, uh, you know, to do Whole30 and not eat good food. You know what I'm saying? It's not wrong for you to, to, to not do certain things, not eat things that are unhealthy. That's not what I'm saying. So track with me for a minute. The problem is when we deny things it can make us feel superior to those who don't. And this is the problem. So like when those people who, you know, they're like, you know, I just don't eat processed foods. I don't eat GMOs. I only eat organic. It has to be grass-fed, free-range, no preservatives. That cow has to be petted and groomed and nails painted and taken care of and, and all of that. And if it does not happen, I'm not eating it. But, and that's fine. That's on you. That's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But what often happens is your abstinence from these things, your, your denying of those things, denying yourself those things, can lead you to feeling more holy and more superior than those who don't. And so then you begin to look down your nose at all of us normal burger eaters. You started out simply denying yourself a pleasure, which is fine, but it can lead to legalistic, self-righteous arrogance. If you have 
for example, never struggled with lustful thoughts or never struggled with looking at things you shouldn't on the computer. You know, that's just not been an issue for you or you've denied those things in yourself. But then you meet someone who has struggled with those things, has had a hard time with those things, you will be tempted to look at them and think, well, if you were just had, had the willpower I have, if you just had the intellect I had, if you just knew what it did to you, then you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't have made such a foolish decision. If you'd be more like me, you wouldn't do it. And it leads to self-righteous arrogance and it makes us feel like we're holy, that we've arrived. You see, at its core, the problem is it is a false gospel that claims that the denial of pleasure, the denial of the things of earth will somehow save you. Yet how often, actually think about this, think about this for a minute. If you go back 50 years, and if you go back to church minutes and business meetings, 50 years, you know what you will find? You will find that the arguments and the things that people got upset over were when other people got caught playing cards. When our ladies got caught playing their bridge game. The things that upset people were when you got caught dancing. Those weren't just problems back then, they're problems now. Like, why do we have this weird legalism toward alcohol, for example? Like, God created alcohol, we can use it wrongly, we can abuse it. Alcohol's not the problem. And if, if that's not for you, if you don't like it, don't, if it's not good for you to do it, then you shouldn't do it. The problem is, is when you look down your nose and judge those who use it wisely and use it rightly. And what happens is our abstinence from things is okay, it's good. There are a lot of things you just shouldn't do at all. Sometimes our abstinence from things that are neutral or are good things cause us to feel superior and more holy and look down at those who do those things. And it gives us false assurance, false salvation in our own holiness. And then the other way we do it. It's when you screw up and we mess up and we fall short. I do this all the time. I mess up, and instead of running to the cross for my forgiveness, I think, oh, what can I do to make up for it? What can I deny myself that would therefore, in turn, make me holy again? That's an anti-gospel. You see, the devil is no fool. He knows that he can either tempt you to believe that you cannot be happy without these physical pleasures, or he can persuade you that we can become holy by rejecting God's good gifts altogether. He can fool us into thinking that our own efforts to deny ourselves will make us happy and deliver us. Two problems, overindulging, or rejecting altogether. And the devil's aim is the same, to pull our hearts toward the things of earth, to overfocus on the things of earth, and to pull our hearts away from the cross of Christ. Superiority is an enemy of the cross. See, just a few verses up, Paul gives this whole list of all these things he's done. He says, you know, I'm a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, and, and it, oh, do, 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 I'm righteous. Do, do. He says, all these things he's done and hasn't done. He says, you think you're holy? Look at my resume, because I'm more holy. And then he says, but I count it all as loss. All the good things I've done, I count as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That I may gain Christ 
You see, we are stuck in this generation-old cycle of despair from either placing all of our hope on the things of earth or by rejecting them, rejecting them in order to feel holy. And both of those lead to destruction. Both of those are marks of being a citizen of earth by over-accepting or over-rejecting. But there's another way. We do not have to be shaped by where we came from. We Instead, we can be shaped by where we're going. Verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you have placed your faith in Christ, this is no longer your home. This is, you are no longer a citizen of earth. You live here on a temporary work visa that is set to expire. Instead, we are headed for our true home home, beyond the grave, the kingdom of God, an eternal kingdom. So we press forward, as Paul says. We press on toward the prize. We look ahead. We look up. We are awaiting a Savior in whom we truly find satisfaction. We focus on heaven. We focus up. We look forward. Now, some people might say, Brent, but if we do that, if we're so heavenly-minded, we will become no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Be so heavenly-minded, you're not earthly good? Can I just say that that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard? That's hogwash. Being heavenly minded actually makes us more earthly good. See, the problem of being molded by our earthly home is not the things of earth. The stuff isn't the problem. The preservatives aren't the problem. The car is not the problem. The house, the relationships, the money is not the problem. We are the problem. And our relationship to those things is the problem. Because we either become overly attached to things that we think will make us happy, or we reject them altogether and feel morally superior and find false salvation through our abstinence. The problem isn't the things of earth. The problem is our relationship to those things. The problem is our focus is in on the wrong place. We're too focused on the things of earth anyway. When we should be focused on things above. See, when we become citizens of heaven, when we become citizens of the kingdom of God, it gives us a new perspective. We, that now this world, we know it doesn't end at the grave. We know that some things in this world are eternal and some things are temporary. We learn, our new perspective is that we are awaiting a new home that is infinitely greater and more wondrous than the one we have now. In verse 21, he says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Do you know what that means? It means that at the end of the day, we don't believe in a kingdom of God that is up in the clouds. We don't believe in a kingdom of God where we become souls to float around and and sing all day long. We believe in a kingdom of God that is all around you even now, a kingdom of God that is breaking into the future, from the future into the present. We believe in a kingdom of God that is here and is coming. We believe in a kingdom of God where we will be raised from the dead with This physical body made perfect, made whole. Knees no longer aching, hips no longer aching. Finally finding the fullness of all the pleasures of earth because the Lord is subjecting all things to himself. He is making everything right. Every relationship, every physical thing, every food, everything will be bursting with joy waiting for us to enjoy it. And because we know that our citizenship lies not in this broken world, but in the kingdom that is coming, it radically changes how we live here and now. You see, we can see the things of earth for what they actually are. When you are a citizen of heaven, you can see the things of earth with the right perspective. You can see them how they actually are. That the things of earth, 
are by and large gifts of God, meant for our enjoyment, but they are but an appetizer pointing us to the full meal awaiting us. See, only when your citizenship is in heaven and not of this world can you actually enjoy the things in this world without overindulging or rejecting them. A medium, rare filet mignon wrapped in bacon. Y'all picturing that with me? Oh, come on. You can only truly enjoy it when you know the giver of the gift. And you don't feel the need to overeat and you don't feel the need to reject. You can enjoy it because it won't satisfy you. But when you know the giver of the gift, you can enjoy it and the enjoyment spirals up into a greater enjoyment because you know the one who has given it to you. Only being citizens of heaven makes us able to enjoy the gifts here and now. I can only enjoy a new car when I know that the car will not fill the hole in my heart. I can only enjoy a relationship when I know that relationship will not fill the hole in my heart. Only when I know the giver of the gift can I put the car or the relationship in its rightful place and enjoy it for what it is. Not something that is ultimate, something that is a good gift meant to be enjoyed. The intimacy shared between a husband and a wife is not an end in itself, but it is a foreshadow of pleasure to come that is awaiting us. People often ask, how do we live in the world as Christians but not be of the world? How do we live in the world but not be of it? This is how. By being shaped not where we came from, but where we're going. By being shaped not by our birthplace, but our true home. By being citizens of heaven first, it makes us better citizens of earth. Because we are not fooled into thinking that this is all there is, and that we have seen what God is making this into, we can press on toward the goal, helping make the world a foretaste of what's to come. We can press on to the, toward the goal. We can make little, uh, l- these little kind of uh, uh, embassies of heaven as tastes of what's to come. We can see them. We can eat a steak and realize that's a little taste of what's coming. We can have a marriage and realize that's a little taste of what's coming. And we can say, we can ask others, come, join us. Become citizens of this new country. Leave this old world behind and come join to the world that is on its way, full of wonder that will last forever. You see, the people in Philippi got this. The people in Philippi were hundreds of miles away from Rome, but yet they were Roman citizens. Many of them had never stepped foot in Rome, but yet they were Roman citizens. And their lives reflected that. Their lives were marked by Roman architecture. Their lives were marked by Roman culture. They were Romans through and through. Even though they had never been to Rome, they were citizens of Rome and that affected their life. And in the same way, we have not set our eyes on the kingdom of Christ. We have not seen the throne on which our Lord reigns, but yet that kingdom has already begun to shape us into what we are supposed to be. That kingdom already defines our character and our values and our way of life. makes us who we are. We do not have to be known by the mistakes and failures of our birthplace. We do not have to be known by the mistakes and failures of our past or of our father, Adam. Instead, we can be known by the grace and new life given to us in Christ, whom we await and in whom his kingdom we pledge our allegiance. 
We don't belong here. This is not our home. It will pass away, it will be destroyed, and something better will be left in its wake. That mother holding her baby, she spoke truer words and she realized not just about the hollers of West Virginia, but that there is truly no hope for us here, that there is no future for us here, that if we live for this place, we will get stuck in the same old patterns and cycles of destruction and never get out. And like that mother who gave up her child and offered it a better life, so too did God send his only son to be broken and killed that we might find true life in him and in his kingdom. See, the world would have us focus overly on its pleasures by overindulging or by abstaining, but both of those take our eyes off the cross that will deliver us. Because only through faith in Christ and his cross will we ever find true redemption, satisfaction, and pleasure. And so we live here on earth with temporary visas, looking to the sky, praying, come, Lord Jesus, take us home, make, transform this place into our home. And as we long for and await that day when the Lord returns and brings his kingdom, he has given us something to help us remember and await that great day. He has given us a tangible sign to look forward to it. We call it the Lord's Supper. A reminder of the sacrifice Jesus made to bring us into his kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said when he had this meal with his disciples? He said, I tell you, I will not drink of it again, of the fruit of this vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we partake of this gospel feast this morning, we look forward to that day when we will drink it in the kingdom of God with our Savior. This morning, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, If you have done that, this meal is for you to encourage you, to hold you over until that day comes, and to remind you of the forgiveness that is already yours in Christ. But if that's not you, if you're here and you're not sure you belong to the, you're not a citizen of heaven, if you're here and you've never placed your trust in Christ, you believed in God, but you know, you never believed in Jesus as your savior, his allegiance, you haven't given him your allegiance. This meal is not for you. Instead, come grab me after the service and let me show you how you can have a free ticket paid for in full, debt paid, and become a citizen of heaven. For many of you in this room right now, you have kids in here, and that is wonderful. But if they have not believed, particularly for them, if they have not been baptized, do not let them take this. Instead, show them that this is for people who's been forgiven of their sins through the blood of Jesus and that one day when they believe these truths for themselves, they too can partake of this gospel feast. Because of COVID, this will be a little different. Uh, We have self-contained cups. And as we pass them out, we will hand them to you. So if you wish to participate, please just stick your hand out and we'll place it in your hand. If you do not stick your hand out, we will assume that means you do not wish to participate in that. We will... Hold on to it. We will all come back and take it together. Let me pray. Father, as we begin and prepare to take this gospel feast, a reminder of your kingdom that is coming, a reminder that we will one day feast with you in this kingdom. Lord, help us to wait. Help us in our our interactions with the things of earth. Help us not to overindulge and help us not to abstain, but help us to enjoy the gifts you've given, knowing that they only point us forward to the greater gifts that are coming. Help us to enjoy them now, but not make them ultimate. 
Father, as we take this meal, help us remember the sacrifice you've made to make us yours. Christ, then we pray all as people said.